past. The Sporting News had a feature called, Hey, Didn't You Used To Be? that played up on the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately nature of sports and celebrity to point out notable performances by big names that perhaps aren't as big anymore. You think anyone ever asked, Hey, didn't you used to be Nebuchadnezzar? Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series The Stand with this message entitled Misdirected Glory, which covers Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 37. Thank you for joining us today. Well, we're in a series. If you're new with us, it's a series in the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. And uh, I've dedicated this series to our young people. And every moment when I'm preparing, I'm thinking our youth, our children, uh, what, what would it be most appropriate to emphasize out of the text of God's Word for our young people? What did I need to hear at that time? What do I want now my grandchildren to hear? And so uh, this one's for you, young people. I know we have people every week that are coming from you know, as a first-time guest, we have a lot of people every week, and I want to make it quick, but I do want to review so that you can catch up. The name of this series is The Stand, The Stand. The next two weeks will end the series, so we're well into it. The next two weeks, chapter 5, next week, which is going to be on a subject matter that many of you, even not so familiar with the Bible, have probably heard about. It's the mysterious handwriting on the wall. You might want to read the text before you come next week. The following week, chapter 6, very known from people who know the Bible and not, it's Daniel in the lion's den. So they're very interesting stories, but there's great gospel truth bound in these texts. And we're going to dig those out and we'll make application primarily and first and foremost to our young people. Quick review in case you're not familiar with the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is a young man who is a, an exile from the Jewish people of Judah. And uh, they've been captured now by Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon. Now, Babylon, you need to understand, is a prototype of society or culture of people representing any peoples who live outside the reign of God. And that would be exemplified most by this Babylon, a very pagan people. One of the young exiles, probably a young teenager that was captured and groomed to be one of the, the officials, one of the what they would call wise men of Babylon, was a man called Daniel. He was given a new name, Belshazzar. But he had three friends, and those three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are new names given to three other Jewish young men. And it's a story, really, about contrast. It's the contrast between the city of Babylon and also the city of Zion, or Jerusalem, as it's often called, which is, again, a prototype. Zion being the kingdom of God. The story unfolds with Nebuchadnezzar as this powerful, powerful king. And he has a, he has a dream, and he cannot interpret the dream. And so, long story short, it happens to be that Daniel can, and he does, interpret the dream. It's the dream of a, a statue that has a golden head, which would represent Nebuchadnezzar. 
But then each piece of the statue going down to the feet and toes represented following kingdoms that would succeed Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Well, there is a what I would call a foxhole conversion, not legitimate, but there is a, a seemingly turning to God by Nebuchadnezzar when he starts talking about, of all the gods, this is a God and the greatest of all gods and so forth, but not a true conversion. After that, then there's an interesting scenario that develops, and that's the scenario of, of this golden statue that is built by Nebuchadnezzar. It shows that there was no conversion of his heart because this is a 90-foot statue all made of gold representing he wanted his kingdom to abide forever and wanted no thought of any other kingdom coming afterwards. Then he requires that everybody, everybody bow at that moment when the, when the music would play and they would have to give homage and worship to this great statue. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the three other Jewish exiles that are talked about in this story. We don't know where, where Daniel is. He's maybe on a mission. We don't know. But these three do not bow. They refuse to bow. As a result, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. And many know the story there, even those that don't know the Bible. You probably remember there was the story of the three that are thrown into the fire. They're not burned at all. And as Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire he sees a fourth figure, and that happens to be the incarnate Christ. That is him at that point. So now we come to this chapter, and we're in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. It's a very interesting text. We have now seen another second foxhole conversion after this amazing deliverance from the fire. And so you would almost think that, that Nebuchadnezzar had become a follower of the true God. But he really hasn't. It's not legitimate. When we come, though, now to chapter 4, most would suggest he has now had a legitimate conversion. He is going to tell his own story. This chapter 4 is his testimony. Whether it's a valid conversion or not is not the real issue. What the real issue is is what we learn about God and man through his story. And so I'm going to tell part of it and I'm going to read part of it. I'd like to read the first three verses to kick it off. And this is him telling his story. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations and men of every language that live in the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Verses 4 through 7 I won't read, but it basically is, is telling about a second dream that he has. Uh, this is an interesting dream. Uh, nobody can interpret it and it reads like this in verses 8 and 9. Finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the body of the holy God is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. So as he's telling his story, he's now reflecting back as 
Nebuchadnezzar not looking at the most high, but at a God. And he says, okay, I need you once again, interpret my dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream is then described to this man, Daniel. And what he says is there's this huge tree, this towering tree. In fact, from the tree, you can see all the ends of the earth. And all the animals and birds of the land, they feed and find their nesting there and their shelter. It's an incredible tree. And it goes on to talk about how amazing it is. And then it says that an angelic watcher ascends from heaven. That's unusual. And he says, and it declares, chop it down. And so the tree is chopped down, only leaving the stump and its roots. And then he says, can you help me understand this? This is how he describes it in Daniel 4, beginning in verse 15. He says, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him, by the way, him, he's going to find out, is himself. He doesn't know it. He's still telling the dream. And let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. You're able for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. And if he can, I won't read it all, but he, he's a really afraid. And he says, I don't think I really want to give you this interpretation. And he says, no, you got to give it to me. He says, all right, here you go. The tree is you, Nebuchadnezzar. It has to do with your amazing global type of, of kingdom that you have and all the influence and so forth. But there is an angelic watcher. And that refers to, that refers to the decree of the Most High that is declared to chop down, meaning take away your kingdom. It's going to be taken away. And he says, in fact, it's going to be, it's going to be for seven years that this is going to happen. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to become like an animal. I mean, you'll act like an animal. There'll be appearances as if uh, one of the beasts of the field, and he describes that. And he says, but the stump, the good news is the stump represents a future kingdom, that you will come back to your kingdom in a different proportion, but it will then become greater than ever. That's, that's, the, that's the story. Well, apparently, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't too open to this and didn't embrace it at all. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is then appealed to by Daniel, and he says, he says, look, please humble your heart. God might just choose to alter this if you just humble your heart. Here's how it reads in verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. If I could say a word to our young people, there's an appeal that I would make to you. 
I will assure you, if your parents walk with God, they would be making this to you. I make this one day, perhaps my grandchildren do hear this. I make the appeal to them. I would make the appeal as we all would that know what it is to know the things of God. We'd say, please, don't go the way of the lie of Babylon. Choose now to see God for who he is, the most high. Embrace him now and you will avoid all kind of pain and heartache and situation in your life. Trust us in this, but don't just trust us. Trust the word of God. Well, that's what he's basically appealing Daniel is to Nebuchadnezzar, saying, look, humble yourself. There's a text in 1 Peter 5. I think this whole chapter is basically an Old Testament picture of the teaching of Peter in that fifth chapter, where he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and God will exalt you in due time. If you want exaltation, it doesn't come by rising up and trying to be the best. It comes by humility and trying to serve all. That's the answer to life. Do I do that well? No. But I know this, to the degree there is that momentum going downward, there is exaltation going upward. It's a a rule of life. It's God's ways. Young people, learn it early. Well, the dream is fulfilled, but it's one year, interestingly. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar goes along and says nothing happens the first day, and then nothing happens the second day, and by a month into it, he's living his life. Life is good. He's the head of the great kingdom. No big deal. But then he's on his rooftop of the royal palace, and at that point, it hits him hard. I'm going to let you hear it from his words, verses 30 through 33. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, that's not the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story because if you're familiar with it, you know that his testimony includes a humility that brings him to see who God really is and who he really is. You see, he had thought he was the exalted one and God is not really to be feared. Now he sees, no, 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 he's the humble one and he, or or himself, he's he's the humble one and God is the mighty God he claims to be. And we're going to see the end now of his testimony. The last verses, 34 through 37, read like this. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surprising greatness was added to me. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And that's his story. Before I conclude with just three very, very brief kind of applications, insights from the text, let me suggest, young people, that you be sure you understand the difference between two types of grace. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. But there is what's called common grace, and there's what's called special grace. Common grace is God giving us what we don't deserve in a common way. His common grace, the Bible teaches, is spread to all men without any issue of, well, who's spiritual, who's not, who loves the Lord, who doesn't, therefore I'll give you common grace because you love me and I won't give you common grace because you don't. If you're a godly, godly person and you get cancer at a young age, it's not because, well, God apparently just, you know, you weren't, you weren't very spiritual. He would, have, he would have looked after you if you were spiritual. Because the reality is, and Scripture addresses in the Psalms 37 and 73, it addresses the reality that why do the wicked prosper? That's David himself. Why do the wicked prosper? It's like seems strange that they get the common grace so often, and maybe we as God's true followers who have special grace, which is the grace of salvation, maybe we don't get as much. Well, we have to keep in mind that God uses this common grace both for those who are and are not his. He uses common grace that he offers to people who do not follow him to show the kindness of God that will lead some to repentance. That's what it says in Romans, the kindness of God leads some to repentance. On the other hand, it is the withdrawal of common grace ultimately that's going to bring the destruction on people who will never follow him. In terms of the use of common grace, sometimes he uses common grace to his people who have special grace that God has bestowed upon them, opens their hearts, they come to know God in a real vital way, and God says, you know, my use of common grace is going to be my greatest gift to you in giving you some and taking some away. And some of you will need common grace given at certain times. It'll be very critical for encouragement, and I'll offer that. And there'll be times that I'll pull common grace away And it's going to be in those very moments that you'll find me closer than ever before. But whatever I do with the use of common grace, it is for your good. All things will work together for good. I was told when I was a young Christian, keep in mind, God's going to use three three different avenues. One of these three in your life. This is the way he reaches people. He's going to reach you through other Christians that he'll put in your pathway, and they'll be the ones that'll show you the way. 
sometimes, and the combinations as well, but sometimes, primarily, he's going to use his kindness. You'll see his kindness, and it'll overwhelm you, and you'll just say, how can I not bow the knee to the God who is so good to me? But thirdly, and very often in our lives, it's crisis. It's where we have great crisis. And he says, how many of our stories right here today are where, man, I came to this place, and I just, I was so down, I had to look up to God. I've had people challenge me. They say, oh, you know what? Your faith, it's, it's a crutch. It's just a crutch. And I say, it is not a crutch. It is an iron lung. I mean, it's far more than a crutch. If I don't have it, I die. Yes, and it is through the worst of times sometimes that we see the greatness of our God. And so please keep that in mind as you see this story. You know, God uses this common grace. He takes away. Here's the thing, folks. You got to get this. Young people know this common grace, whether it be the rain that we enjoy, whether it be the health that we have, whether it be good relationships that we enjoy, whatever the common grace is, folks, we do not deserve it. That's why it's called common grace. And when it's taken away, there's no injustice with God. He's not done any evil or wrong. We've got to keep that in mind. It is grace. And if he withdraws grace, if he took grace away from this earth, it would be mass murder. Everyone would hate and kill and it would just be, but it's that common grace that keeps us even civil or moral or things that we are, even though not yet, having embraced special grace. So keep that in mind. Very, very, very important. Now let's look Let's look at these three very important points that are pretty much just brief applications, but they're insights that give us the application. Number one, all of creation, including mankind, was designed to bring glory to God. Many of you here in this church are familiar with the first catechism question and answer of the children's catechism, as we call it. And uh, it's, it simply goes like this, so the question, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to what? See how many people know it? Glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In fact, the way we glorify him most is by enjoying him, right? And that's the story of why we do all things. So I'm playing golf this last week, and I'm playing with a group of buddies, and, and uh, a couple of which have been in my, my journey group over the years. But I, I'm talking to this one guy, that, that, and, and he's kind of giving me a little, you know, pushback criticism and fun and so forth about, you know, why are you trying that new? You're doing all right the other way. Why are you, why are you exploring? You're always tinkering. You're always trying something different. Always trying this, always trying that. And so I looked over him and I said, let me ask you a question. Do you know the reason that we play golf? And he said, well, sure, to score low. And before I could say anything, one of the other guys who'd been in my journey group says, no, 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 no. Remember, whatever you ask, always say for the glory of God, okay? <laughs> just, just say for the glory of God, and you're going to be on the right answer, I'll assure you. We, we all laugh. I said, well, actually, that was not what I was going to say. I was going to say, we do it for fun. If this is fun for me, then I do it. You understand it. But the point is, it really is true. Young people, if you want to know the answer to any question about why that has to do with purpose or anything, it's for the glory of God. Why does God do what he does for his own glory? 
what should we do and why should we do it? For God's glory. And that's the thing we have to get here is that that's the way we were designed for, by God. We're designed for that very purpose. And when we get out of that purpose, I'm telling you, life does not, it doesn't roll correctly. It's, it's just, it's a wheel out of balance from that point on. And we're tinkering with the, the wheel and trying to get it this way. No, 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 no. Live for God's glory and, and watch what happens. It begins to take the right shape. Very important. I'll put it this way too, young people. If you want to really get to the point that you can say, you know, I'm living for my right purpose. You will never get there if you don't have a correct view of God and a correct view of yourself. And that's what we see in this text. Nebuchadnezzar didn't see God as he should. Remember this, young people, your view of God will shape your way of life. It will shape your way of life. I remember when I was in college, I told this story before years ago, but I was in college and we had a, having a ministry in an athletic dorm and and uh, so we said, let's see if how many people might show up for a debate on the, on the person of Jesus Christ. Wow. And so we didn't know how many people might show. We had this room, and it was packed out. I mean packed out. We were so amazed. And this was my little journey group or discipleship group that was hosting us, and I was the leader of it. And so I was kind of the spokesperson. And, and so I began to ask for questions, and it got going. And, and this one guy was just vile. I mean, he was so anti-God and just... You know, he was just letting God have it if there was a God. And, and finally, I stopped and I said, let me just ask you, does it bother you at all that one day you might just die and show up before the gates of heaven and there is God to whom you have to answer? Does that concern you at all? He looked at me without a thought. He said, not a bit, because one, I don't believe there is a God. And if I'm wrong and there is, I'll run over that God and I'll take over heaven if I have to. Not even God stops me. I said, are you ready to pray to receive Jesus? Or you think you're there now, you know? Well, obviously, this guy was way gone. I mean, he was not. But as a result of that, another guy came up after and said, you know what? I really am concerned about standing before God, and I, I need to... I need to think about it. And so we talked, and I said, do you think? He said, I'm not ready to do that. I'm, I'm going to think about it. And so his name happened to be my same name, Randy. And so I would see him on campus for the weeks that would follow. I, we'd cross paths, going to class from time to time. I'd see him at a distance, and I'd holler out, hey, Randy, how you doing? And he'd respond back and say, still thinking about it. Always still thinking about it. Very soon after that, elevator of the athletic dorm stopped and it was jammed for over a week and they finally got people from outside the town to come and, and work on it and when they did they found Randy he was wedged between the elevator and the shaft he was dead he'd climbed up the cables up the top and was out with binoculars and was looking at girls on the top of rooftops that were sunning and so forth and on his trip down apparently had fallen and whatever had happened and he lost his life and I've often wondered as he was thinking did he did he understand that God is the most high with her but the reality is this, if you've got the wrong view of God, you're going to push him away. And sometimes even in the right view of God, we're going to push him away because we know he is in control and we don't want him in control. But I'll tell you, we also have to have the right view of ourselves. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar was so off track. Let's look at number two. To refuse to give glory to God is to assume glory for self. In other words, there's not a neutral. Don't anyone say, you know, 
well, I'm not really giving glory to God, but I'm not taking glory. No, it, it, it really is. It's, it's just natural that we do that. Imagine that, that you were to offer to someone in great peril and need a lot of money, and you give them a lot of money in abundance or whatever, and yet then overhear them taking credit for all the, the wealth they have, they have built over their life. And you're sitting there going, wait, 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 wait. You didn't even mention that I gave you that money. And you're taking credit for being wealthy when I gave you what you've got? Would that be a little offensive? I would think so. It's the same with God. Jeff and I were just talking between the services, and, and uh, I had shared earlier that, that I, I'm amazed at myself how, how natural it is for me to just pull glory from God and even from other people. And I shared how I'll do uh, a, a some particular thing that I might do in speaking, and then I see some young leader that might be taking and take what I've got, and and they they use it, and I, I hear them talked about that they used that uh, that they were so good and so forth, and and I sit there and I go, now wait, I gave them what they said, I gave them what they said, and then I realize. I got that from somebody else. But I still want credit for it. Jeff was sharing with me that with a wedding, that he had done some weddings, and I did his wedding, and, and he said, you know, I took your wedding, and I've used that from that point on. And he said a guy that I had married wanted to see if he could use it. He was going to marry somebody as a pastor, and he said, can I use the wedding that you did? And he said, and I got mad at him for using the wedding that I got from you, which I got from Jim Baird. I thought, you know, <laughs> we're all mad. None of us came up with it. Why in the world? So that's the way it works, isn't it? We do take credit. Number three, when glory due to God is directed to self, there are inevitable consequences. Young people hear this, and if you would, go read Romans 1. Beginning in verse 21, it says, and this is what happens. It's in a progression. It begins with ingratitude. It's the first one. We don't give thanks to God for the strength or for the, the intellect or for the talent. We kind of feel pretty good. Look, look what I've done. We climb up that ladder in Babylon and we say, oh, look where I am. We even find ourselves moving up in the, in the ladder and in, the, in terms of the city of Zion, and we start taking credit for that even. And so let me tell you, you live in ingratitude very long, and it will happen. Idolatry is birthed. And God gives us over to idolatry. Idolatry is placing something else in life is so critically important that I think if I don't have it, that I cannot be satisfied. That's an idol, good thing or bad thing. Which leads thirdly to impurities. Young people know this. You're not going to be pure in your heart and life and your, even your actions and your morals if you allow idolatries just to simmer and do not shatter them. Then God gives us over to degrading passions. And once we allow those grading passions to continue on, it goes to a depraved mind. And the description that follows that is it's intense. It's, it's something we look at and go, who wants to go there in life? Well, let me tell you, you need to stop it at the top. 
And the contrast to that, what I've been saying through this series, if you want to go the other direction, then you just wash your mind with truth. Truth, truth, truth. Read it. Listen to it. You know, memorize it. Get in the Word of God. And that truth, you may not even believe, but after you've been in it long enough, there's something born in the heart. And in a sense, God gives you over in the good sense. And that belief, that uh, truth turns to belief. And then in time, as you have the belief, but it's just a belief, it's not really yours so deeply, then it's born into a conviction. And once it's in a conviction for a season of life, guess what happens? It's born into a passion. And as I keep saying, when it's just a conviction, as good as that is, we become somewhat dutiful, but at least we are obeying. But you carry on, and that passion will give you delight in doing the things of God. So we're going to go one direction, or we're going to go the other direction for sure. And so here we need to consider not just the greatness of who God is, but look at your own heart and life. Look where it goes outside God working in it. John Gerstner, who was, he's deceased now, was one of the greatest theologians, if not the greatest theologian of his time. One of the best for sure. We had him actually preach at our church in the 80s, as he then was an older man. Very few people compare intellectually with this guy. And he'd given a talk, and he talked about the condition of man's heart, how desperately wicked it is. And then he had a Q&A when it was over. And, and one of the people shot out and was kind of upset at, at a comparison. He had compared mankind to rats. And for some reason, this guy didn't like it. You know, he just didn't like it. So he gets up, and he says, I am a bit offended at what you said. The comparison is quite insulting. And so Gerstner got up and he said, I do apologize in that the comparison was extremely unfair to the rats. (laughs) But his point was simply this. Do you see what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? You take away that common grace and, oh, my goodness, it's like a beast of the field. And there go you and I outside the grace of God. You put those two together, the high view of the most high, Take who we are, a broken and sinful people. And in that humility, the exalting God exalts even the lowest of all. Young people, you can bank on that one. You won't feel it. You won't think it naturally. That's why truth, belief, conviction, passion, that's how it happens. So, the last few weeks, we've, we've talked about the gain in not bowing before the great statues, which are for us the dreams of our minds so often. This week, we've talked about the consequences of bowing, and we see it in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Young people... The truth is this, there's going to be a comparison of life and you're going to walk through and you're going to have to look to the left and look to the right and you're going to look over to one side and you're going to see Babylon and you look over to the right and you're going to see Zion. You're going to look over one way and you're going to see a statue and you're going to look over the other way and you're going to see a rock and the rock is Christ. You're going to look to the left and you're going to see, you're going to see the Nebuchadnezzars, they're going to be all around you. 
And you're going to look to the right and you're going to see the Daniels. And it looks like Daniels are just young and immature and who knows what's ever going to happen to this young kid. And you're having to make a decision. Am I going to go here? Am I going to go there? Where do I go? Do I stand? Do I fall? What do I do? Don't forget the rock. The rock is our Christ. The rock does shatter the statue of the world's kingdoms. And the rock becomes a mountain that fills the earth. That's the kingdom of God. And you, if in Christ, will reign in that kingdom forever and ever. It gets no better than that. It gets no better. How do you get there to make such a stand? You get there by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. It is not your willpower. If you go through your school day and you say, I will willfully go to the mountain. I will willfully go to the the Zion. I will willfully. No. You got to say, oh God, I cannot get to Zion. But you can get me there. You're the rock. And there's a sense in which to shatter that kingdom, that rock's got to hit it. And he's going to hit it. But he uses us in our own statues to, in a sense, throw the rock. And that's as we appropriate the power of God's spirit in us. Don't do it by willpower. Acknowledge you can't. He can. Invite his power to do so. Then watch what happens. So once again, you're going to have tough choices. You remember, young people, you go to the mountain. You go to the rock. You go to Zion. And you win. You win. Let's pray together. Our Father, convince us all, young people and adults alike, that there is a kingdom worth living for because of the king of that kingdom. I pray you would take us all to the cross, not just initially to meet you and become one of your people. And I pray that would even happen right now with some in here who say, I'm not yours. I I've had foxhole conversions, but I need a true life change. God, show them your love from the cross, giving your life. And may they find what you do for them, not what they do for you, to be their means of knowing you forever. I pray, Father, for the young people of this church. Grant them, Father, to walk strong in you and not bow as the temptation will be so strong. Grant it, we pray, for your honor and your glory and the well-being of all your people. We pray in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.